Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to see you again. understand we have a couple of cases that are noteworthy and up for discussion this week. Absolutely. These are important cases, and we here in the Foundation are working on all of these. Actually, a couple of them aren't really cases. One of them involves a bill that passed the Alabama legislature this last term earlier in 2022, and the bill provides that every school district in the state has to hire a mental health coordinator And that by itself can be dangerous because, first of all, the school really has no business getting into mental health. The purpose of school is to teach children the basic educational skills that they need to succeed in life. And teaching mental health gets into religious issues, gets into values issues, and it has the school trying to mold the lives and thinking of children in ways that even the normal educational curriculum doesn't try to do. But beyond that, the bill is so poorly drafted, it provides that the mental health coordinator has to have at least one, and at least one, that is not necessarily more than one, with the following qualifications. First is a four-year degree in social work. Now, what in a four-year degree of social work qualifies you to be a mental health coordinator? And then there's second, dealing with experience and certification things. And finally, other qualifications that the board deems sufficient. Basically, the board can hire whoever they want under that. But it goes on to say that the mental health coordinator will provide mental health, either himself or herself or to people that they might refer the child to. But then it goes on to say that the child cannot participate in these services without the consent of the parents if the child is 14 or under. Over 14, the child does not need the consent of the parents. And if, for example, the child comes in and says, I want to be the opposite sex from now on, I want to be known as the opposite sex, the coordinator can counsel that person, refer that person, that student to help downtown or provide it there and get the person what the person needs in order to make the gender transition, supposedly, and not even tell the parents. And if the parents call the school about, say, Johnny is has an issue here regarding the school. Johnny, we don't have Johnny here. We have a Joanna. Could that be who you're talking about? What? And anyway, this is absolutely ridiculous. Well, we're making some suggestions to the people who've inquired of us, as well as to the school board, the state school board, and probably sending this on to the legislators, things they can do to amend this. However, we need to make clear that we're not just trying to fix little holes in the dike. We'll do that sometimes. When you're involved in Christian activism, fixing holes and leaks is what you have to do. But the problem goes much broader than that. 
First of all, the state has no business dictating to the school boards whether or not they should have a mental health coordinator or who that should be. That should be their decision. Secondly, there's no real reason why school boards need a mental health coordinator. You know, one of the problems we've got in schools today is the increasing numbers of students are put on behavior modification drugs and so on. And all that is doing is making things worse. You know, back when I was in school, back in the 50s and early 60s, back in those days, none of us were on behavior modifying drugs. And not saying we didn't have any behavior problems, but our behavior problems certainly were nothing like what the schools are having to deal with today. The more drugs they put the kids on, the worse their behavior becomes. But there's something else going on here too, and that's that I think there's a direct link between, link between all of these problems and taking God out of the schools. Some will say, well, no, we didn't take God out of the schools. Not exactly, but they did make his mention, if not forbidden, at least disfavored. And with the prayer, the Bible reading decisions of 1962 and 63, with the Stone versus Graham decision saying that the Ten Commandments may not be displayed in public schools, which I think is likely to be overruled today, but at any rate, decisions like that, we are now seeing with much less consciousness of God, much less consciousness of the Bible in schools than there was before. In fact, a very good friend of mine, a professor of education at a school in Colorado, had done a study about 15 years ago. He went into a public school, a high school in one of the Denver suburbs, and did a survey of the students in a particular class just to find out how familiar they were with the Ten Commandments. And he found that there were a few who knew all of the commandments. Most of them knew maybe two or three at least. And there were a few, a very few, who couldn't name a single one. That was about 15 years ago. And then 10 years later, he came back to that same school district, the same class, obviously different kids this time, but the same class, was the same survey. And he was amazed at how their knowledge of the Ten Commandments declined in those 10 years. He found many who would simply say, Ten Commandments? I don't know what you're talking about. 10 years earlier, a kid might not be able to name any of them, but he at least knew there was something called the Ten Commandments. Ten years after that, kids were saying, I've never heard of them. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the school has come to occupy such a wide swath in the lives of our students and in shaping the thinking of our students. And it is shaping them in such a secular way that God and his word are being left out. And if God and his word are being left out, then obviously that means his law is being left out. And if his law is being left out, no wonder we're having behavior problems today. Rather than putting a mental health counselor in each school district 
inventor to put the Ten Commandments back in each school district. And anyway, so that's one of the matters that we at the foundation are trying to help with is getting the Ten Commandments back into the schools. We've got another matter here that involves a case, and you probably heard of this case before. It's been in the Supreme Court before. The Supreme Court refused to hear it at that time or remanded it back. And it's been bouncing back and forth from the lower courts. And now it is up to the Supreme Court again. It is called Klein versus State of Oregon. And you might know it better by the name Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Now, this case involves a bakery in Oregon occupied or operated by Aaron and Melissa Klein. And anyway, bakery, among the other things they did, was make wedding cakes. And a young lady came in and said that she wanted a wedding cake for her marriage. And so when they wanted the name of the bride and the groom to put on the cake, well, there isn't going to be a groom. There are going to be two brides. And Melissa and Aaron simply said that because of our religious convictions, we can't help you with this. They had good relations with this particular customer before, and the customer left and was apparently going to go try to find somebody else. But then the girl's mother came in and accused the clients of being judgmental and discriminatory and also told them that, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits same-sex marriage. The Bible doesn't say anything about, about homosexuality, to which Aaron Klein just simply responded with the passage from Leviticus, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is abomination. And the mother then went and reported to the human rights authorities in Oregon that Aaron Klein had just called her daughter an abomination which is not what he said at all. He said the act is said by the Bible to be an abomination. He didn't call it that, nor did he say that that means she is an abomination. But anyway, so this went to the Human Rights Commission. They determined that it was a human rights violation to refuse to serve a same-sex couple, to which the clients responded, we've always been willing to serve them. We're willing to serve same-sex couples regularly. We're just not going to celebrate a wedding for them by making a wedding cake for them because that would mean us endorsing the homosexual behavior that is involved there, and we can't do that. If they simply want to come in and buy some cakes or buy some cupcakes or some other pastry from us, certainly we're willing to deal with it. Well, they have lost their case thus far, and now it is at the Supreme Court. And in light of some of the past decisions of the Supreme Court, we think that there might be a very good chance that the court is ready to rethink some of this. We have seen in the past term of the court, where the court has not only overruled the Roe versus Wade decision, but has upheld the right of Coach Kennedy in Washington state to pray on the 50 yard line after a football game. We've seen where the court has upheld the right of Pastor Shirtliff 
and his church in Boston to fly the Christian flag on a flagpole in the city park when his church is holding an event in that park, just as other groups have been allowed to fly their flags on that flagpole when they're holding events there. And as the court has even gone so far as to say that a prisoner who is facing execution and is asking that his pastor be allowed to be present, to pray audibly, and to lay hands on him during the execution, that the Texas would not allow this, and the Supreme Court, in this last term, eight to one, said that that should be allowed, that the state had not shown any compelling interest that could not be achieved by any less restrictive means. Now, if the execution were by the electric chair, then maybe there would be a reason not to have the pastor lay hands. But that's not the case here. And so, But the way the court has been looking at these cases, we think that the court is showing a very high regard for religious liberty. And we think there is a very strong likelihood that the court will be sympathetic toward the client's case. I would note, for example, that Back in, I believe it was 1983, Congress adopted a resolution calling upon the president to declare the next year to be the year of the Bible. And in their resolution, Congress declared that biblical concepts of law and government have inspired our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. So Congress itself has recognized that the Bible has had an influence on our legal system today. And anyway, we would make the argument that freedom of religion is the first and foremost, most of all rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution. The right does not come from the Constitution, it comes from God. God is the one who ordains rights. The Constitution simply guarantees the rights that God has already ordained. It's like even Jefferson says in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and then goes on to say that to secure these rights, not to grant them, to secure these rights, governments are ordained among men. A very liberal Supreme Court justice, Justice Douglas, wrote for the court in Zorak versus Clawson back in 1952, we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. In other words, our institutions, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, presuppose the existence of God. Our Constitution, for example, begins with the preamble, and one of the purposes of government set forth in that preamble is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Now, the blessings of liberty, blessings come from a higher source. And what higher source could that be but God? Now, Douglas also said in McGowan versus Maryland, this is 1961, the institutions of our society are founded on the belief that there is an authority higher than the authority of the state, that there is a moral law which the state is powerless to alter, that the individual possesses rights conferred by the creator 
which government must respect. Now, there is a recognition there, even by a liberal justice, Justice Douglas, that the Declaration, the Constitution, protect rights, and that government has to respect those rights because they come from a higher source. They come from God. As I said, Justice Douglas was a liberal justice. Part of the reason he held to this view, I can tell you from going back to Ottertail County in rural northern Minnesota, where there is a main Presbyterian church. And Douglas served as the pastor of that church. And so there is some influence there that apparently wasn't lost on Justice Douglas. Religious liberty has a basis as we see it in the Bible itself. When we see, for example, in John 8, 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And we see in the Liberty Bill, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Quotation from Leviticus 25.10. And so we see a religious basis for liberty. And that being the case, liberty, religious liberty, needs to be the foremost of all liberties. Because God is the source of liberty, and if we don't acknowledge him, we don't have the basis for acknowledging any liberty. And that's why... In the Bill of Rights, the first liberties mentioned in the Bill of Rights are religious liberty, freedom from an establishment of religion, and the freedom to engage in the free exercise of religion. And as we go through the colonial period, we can certainly see in the colonial period, in fact, we even go before the colonial period, and we see Martin Luther, for example, as he stands before the Diet of Worms and refuses to recant his writings there. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And as he says further in the letter of temporal authority, the extent to which it should be obeyed, the temporal government has laws which extend no farther than to life and liberty and external affairs on earth. For God cannot and will not permit anyone but himself to rule over the soul. John Calvin believed something very similar when John Calvin too stood for freedom of conscience and said, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Strong belief that our founding fathers had in religious liberty. And I believe that when the court considers Klein versus Oregon. Well, one thing we're urging in our amicus brief is that the court should return to these very high concepts of religious liberty that the reformers held and our constitutional founders 
came largely out of a Reformation, particularly a Calvinist background. Their understanding of religious liberty was based on Calvin and Luther. But anyway, we're certainly hoping that that is the way they will ultimately decide to resolve this case. We have other things that we are working on here. For example, there's an organization nationwide as well as in Alabama, Eagle Forum. And Eagle Forum has been hit with a subpoena to release its records concerning a law that Alabama adopted. Alabama adopted a law in the last couple of terms of the legislature here that prohibited transgender surgery on minor children. And those who are suing to have that law declared unconstitutional have asked to subpoena all records from Eagle Forum as to what contacts they had with the Alabama legislature in getting that law passed. They're searching desperately for something that they can show an improper motive in its passage. Or in, as I'm speaking right now, one of our other journeys is involved in a conference call on that case. And so we're hoping to help Eagle Forum in resisting this encroachment. And anyway, so we are as busy as we can be. Another call from a National Guardsman who is just transferring from active duty to the Guard. And he has a religious objection to vaccine. And so we're helping him with his exemptions there. That issue has not gone away. This is the Army Guard. And we have exemptions that protect all of those with religious objections to vaccination, protecting all those in the Navy, in the Air Force, and in the Marines. But we don't yet have an injunction protecting members of the Army or protecting members of the Coast Guard. And hopefully that will change. I'd like to say hopefully this case will result in that change, but actually we're really hoping that this case doesn't have to go to the court, we hope we can get it resolved without any such problem. These are the things we in the Foundation for Moral Law do. And I would just say to all of our listeners, if you have a case that involves an issue involving the Constitution, religious liberty, right to life, right to keep and bear arms, other constitutional rights like this, we ask you to contact us and you can reach us at morallaw.org, M-O-R-A-L-L-A-W.org, or you, you can call us at 334-262-1245. Again, 334-262-1245. Well, when we're looking at the question that Luther and Calvin are both raising here, can we ever disobey government? I'm going to be teaching a class tonight for my church. They've asked for a Bible study, and between now and the fall elections, we're doing a Bible study on God and government issues. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at the issue of our duty to the government. We already talked about a duty to be informed, a duty to pray, a duty to be involved. But to, tonight, it will be obedience and disobedience. And we'll look at that after this break. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 
Once again, we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, you're talking about duty. That's a word we don't hear a lot these days. We hear lots about uh, rights and entitlements and, you know, what I want. How come people aren't so keen on the duty part that <laughs> goes along with that? I suppose that's typical of human nature itself, but it seems to be especially true of this uh, younger generation, the silent generation. No, that's not the silent generation. This is Generation X. The silent generation was really the generation that I was born into, the tail end of it. The World War II and post-World War II generation, those up through about 1946. I was born in 1945, and seemed like our parents, as their parents before them, took the concept of duty very seriously. And duty isn't taken as seriously today. You know, they were the World War I generation and then the World War II generation. <clears throat> Tom Brokaw wrote a book titled The Greatest Generation, talking about that generation that won World War II and defeated Nazism there. I agree, there was greatness in that generation. I'm not sure they were greater than the World War I generation, but they were a great generation nevertheless. One thing I'm not sure that generation did as well as they could was to pass on their values to their children. Many of them came home and their children became the baby boom children and much more interested in indulgence and entitlement. And that seems to have increased ever since. But it's perhaps just part of human nature, but that human nature was restrained by the way people were raised back in the days before World War I and World War II, that people were raised at that time to understand that their desires sometimes had to be subordinate to a duty. But today, it seems like we don't want to talk about duty. We want to talk about our rights. But Liberty exists. Liberty can exist only in proportion to wholesome restraint. People can live in a state of liberty only if they have self-discipline to restrain their sinful urges. It's like John Adams once said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. What he meant by that is that unless people have self-discipline, self-restraint, a certain moral virtue, things that really only religion can impart, unless people have those qualities, government is going to have to supply that virtue from without. Government is going to have to force people to do the right thing. People can live in liberty only if they are self-disciplined. That's why Governor Morris once said that the American Constitution would never work in France, and he'd been an ambassador to France, because he said the French people at that time lacked the moral character for responsible self-government. Washington, in his farewell address, said, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And the point of the matter is, unless people supply a morality to it, liberty is going to result in license, and it is going to degenerate into anarchy, 
anarchy will quickly be replaced by tyranny. I think we're headed in that direction today. So let's look then at what the Bible has to say about our duties towards civil government. And the passage that I'm going to look at today is, first of all, Romans 13, where we read of a duty to government. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And Paul is writing these words to Christians living in the city of Rome, and he's writing somewhere around 58 to 60 AD, at the time when Rome has a very ungodly ruler, the person of Nero. But Paul nevertheless says, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. The rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise from the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou doest not, but if thou doest that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, an avenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. In other words, God has authorized civil rulers to punish crime. They do so for the sake of restraining the exercise of crime. If they didn't do so, human nature being what it is, people would be robbing each other, murdering each other, assaulting each other, enslaving each other, and governments can't take away the desire to do that. But it can put a penalty there so that people know that crime doesn't pay. You may be tempted to rob a jewelry store, but you see that policeman there on the corner, and you decide it just isn't a very good idea to do that. But notice, well, Paul gives this commandment. Notice he implies in this, he assumes, I should say, that rulers are going to be punishing evil and rewarding good. Now, that implies that there is a higher standard of good and evil to which human government must be subject. What do we do then when government commands us to do evil or forbids us to do good? Paul doesn't address that here in Romans 13, but we know that Paul was often in prison and was ultimately beheaded for preaching Christ. And we know also that those who take it upon themselves to define good and evil, incur God's severe condemnation. Isaiah 5.20, woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil. And then we have also a passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and verses 13 through 17. Where Peter says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or unto governors as to them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. So, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, he's saying we obey civil government 
all the way from the top, the emperor, all the way down to the local sheriff. Because number one, by doing so, we have a good testimony for ourselves, those who are saying evil things about Christians. Well, the best way we can put the lie to that is by conducting ourselves as model citizens. And anyway, so those are the commandments. But again, they assume that government is rewarding good and punishing evil. What happens when government does the opposite? Well, Peter and the other disciples give an answer to that. They're in Acts 5.29, where they are commanded not to preach the gospel. And their response is, we ought to obey God rather than men. So very clearly, we obey government, except when government commands what the word of God forbids, or forbids what the word of God commands. And then we obey God rather than man. And that seems to be very clear from what Paul and Peter said, seems to be very clear also from the way they conducted themselves. Also, I might add, it's very clear from the catechisms of the church. The Augsburg Confession of Lutherans, for example, simply says that Christians are necessarily bound to obey their own magistrates and laws, save only when commanded to sin. For then they ought to obey God rather than man. And the Westminster Confession, which would be the Calvinist equivalent of the Augsburg Confession, says that we have a duty to obey all just laws. And that implies that we don't obey unjust laws. Anyway, let's look at a few examples of that as we go through Scripture. For example, let's go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 and verses 15 through 21. Now you recall what's happened here, that the Hebrews have come down to live in Egypt, and they have prospered in Egypt, so much so that some of the Egyptian people consider the Hebrews to be a threat to them. And so the Pharaoh, the lawful ruler over Egypt, issues a command, and the command is that the midwives are to slay the male Hebrew children. This will prevent them from multiplying and taking over. But notice what happens here as we look to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, and he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it shall be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then shall she live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Here you have a command by a lawful ruler, the Pharaoh, and the midwives disobey that command. And the reason they disobey the command, we're told here, is because they fear God. And we read in verse 18, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have ye done this thing, and have saved the male children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, 
and they are delivered ere the mirrored waves come into them, which not only have they disobeyed the king, but they have given the king a perhaps disingenuous explanation as to why. But as a result of their disobedience, what do we read here in verse 20? Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. In other words, here's what's happened. God has blessed the midwives because of their disobedience to Pharaoh, because Pharaoh had issued an unjust, unlawful command. And he has blessed them for their disobedience, and he has given them houses, meaning he's given them husbands and families of their own. We can go on to the book of Esther, and Esther is a fascinating book, but when we read in the book of Esther, we read of how she is faced with a situation where the Persian, actually he's an Amalekite, but a Persian official, Haman has a plot to destroy the Jews, and Esther is called upon by Mordecai to come to the king, the Persian king, and tell him of this plot, and she is afraid to do so. And notice the interchange here in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him commandment to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whoever, man or woman, shall come to the king in the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except him to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not called to come into the king these 30 days. In other words, she's saying, it's against the law to come before the king without an appointment. That it, it's a death sentence. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou shalt escape altogether, or also give to hold thy peace at this time, then will their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house will be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, assemble all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. In other words, to save her people, she is willing to commit what could be a capital offense. And of course, they are rewarded. And then we look to, in Joshua chapter 2, where the spies go into Jericho, and Rahab disobeys the king of Jericho by hiding these spies and not revealing them. And God blesses her disobedience by preserving her throughout Jericho's destruction and also giving her a place in the lineage to Jesus Christ. We look to Samuel, First Samuel chapter 14, and Verse 45, where King Saul has issued a decree as the Hebrews are going into battle that anyone who eats after the battle shall be put to death. 
His son, Jonathan, fights heroically in the battle, but not knowing of this order, he goes ahead and eats. And Saul orders his death. But the people resist. They regard Jonathan as a hero. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. And so again, we see an example of the people disobeying King Saul. So we see examples of civil disobedience in the Old Testament. And it seems clear that those instances of disobedience are limited to circumstances where the government has commanded something that the Word of God forbids, or has forbidden something that the Word of God commands. And let's look at a classic example, and this is the book of Daniel. Daniel is possibly the best model you can find of a believer who is living in a secular or pagan society and being a good citizen of that society and at the same time being faithful to God. You recall that at the very beginning of the book of Daniel that Jerusalem falls to King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, and that's about 605 B.C., and the king Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and according to Jewish tradition, several hundred other Jewish youths, and takes them hostage to Babylon, and there in Babylon, they're put through a three-year indoctrination program in the Babylonian public schools, teaching them Babylonian language, literature, customs, religion, law, and the like, and the desire is to make them thoroughgoing Babylonians. And part of what we're told here is that they are given food here by the king, appointed a daily portion of the king's food and of the wine which he drank, so apparently they're being treated as royalty, they're being given respectful treatment, but Daniel has determined that the king's diet violates his Jewish dietary laws. And so we read that Daniel has purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's food, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore, he requests that he not have to do so. He requests that he be put on his Jewish diet. And notice what Daniel does here. Before disobeying, he tries to work out his conflict with authority. And he su suggests to the captain of the guard, look, this violates our dietary laws. Could we be exempt? The captain of the guard said, you'll endanger my head to the king. In other words, I'm responsible for your welfare. If you eat that Jewish diet and you don't thrive on it, then I could lose my job. I could even lose my head. Daniel then proposes a test solution. He says, put us on our own Jewish diet for, for 10 days, and let's see how it works. I mean, we can't get too sick in 10 days, can we? And they agree, and at the end of the 10 days, they're the healthiest of a lot, and so they are allowed to continue. That's an example where Daniel is able to work out his conflict with authority, and we always have a duty to work out our conflict with authority if we are able to do so. 
But then in chapter three, when the king sets up a golden image and requires that everybody fall down and worship that golden image, and of course the Hebrews are clearly commanded, thou shall not worship the graven image. And so when they're commanded to do so, Daniel's friends basically say, we must obey God rather than man. And they say, we are not careful, that is, we are not afraid to answer thee, O king. If it be known, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And so they are sent to a fiery furnace, and their God delivers them through the fiery furnace, through the fourth man of the furnace, who is said to be like unto the Son of God, and I believe that to be a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Daniel chapter 6, King Darius commands that everyone has to ask everything of him. In other words, this is a way of consolidating his authority over this conquered province of Babylon. Nobody will ask anything of any god or of any other man. All requests come from me for the next 30 days. And Daniel learns of this decree. Daniel, by this time, is in his 80s. And he learns of this decree, and he knows of it. The word no means not only does he know the decree has been issued, but he knows why. And he determines that he has to obey God. And so he goes up to his chamber, and he prays before God with his windows open, as he had done aforetime. This isn't some newfound conviction of his. He has been doing this all along. People who suddenly want to make martyrs of themselves, that's not necessarily the way God wants it. And he does so openly. He could have just closed the windows, and Darius liked him, so he probably could have survived that crisis, but he doesn't, and he disobeys openly. He is cast into the den of lions, not a fiery furnace, because the Persians are Zoroastrian, and for them, fire was a sacrament, and it'd be a sacrilege to put somebody in a fiery furnace, so they use a den of lions. And once again, God delivers Daniel through the den of lions. Now, there are several things that I think we conclude from all of these, and particularly from the book of Daniel, and that's that, first of all, we obey civil authority whenever we can. We obey unless civil authority commands what the Word of God forbids. We try to work out our conflict if we can, and especially that's true in a country like ours where we have some right, some opportunity to change the laws. We try to legislate if we can, we try to litigate if we can, we try to negotiate if we can. Only if all that fails do we disobey. We disobey knowing what the consequences are going to be. We disobey openly, and we disobey respectfully. Even as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying that they will not obey the king, they are respectful toward him. Even as Daniel is cast into the den of lions, he is respectful throughout. In fact, when he is finally delivered from the furnace. He uses the standard form addressed to a Persian king, O king, live forever. Even disobeying, we disobey respectfully.
So as far as our duty to government is concerned, normally we have a duty to obey. And we obey even when we think a law that government adopts is stupid. If we think a law government adopts is stupid, we try to change it legally in every way we can, but we don't disobey. We disobey only when we have to disobey in order to obey the higher law of God.